You may be seated. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 19. Chapters 19 through 21 belong together. It's one unit, but we're going to take it in two parts tonight, just focusing on chapter 19. And I confess this is a hard chapter to read. It's a hard chapter to hear. It's a hard chapter to preach. So before we hear God's word, let us ask for his help. Father, we confess that one of the reasons the gospel still doesn't seem all that bright and wonderful to us is that we still don't realize how dark and horrific sin is. So I ask that through your word, you would show us again the darkness in order that you might lead us into the light. We pray that as you convict us once again of sin, you would teach us how to plead for mercy in Christ and that we would receive that mercy in full. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this evening from Judges chapter 19. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jabus, that is, Jerusalem. 
He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jabus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his father said to him, We will not. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come, and let us draw near to one of these places, and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, and they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys, with bread and wine for me and your female servant, and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you, I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was, until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. This is the word of the Lord. 
During the week when the weather allows, I often take walks through the neighborhood surrounding the church. As I do, I always see various signs and banners that are placed in people's yards or hanging over their doors. One of the houses has a sign over the door that says, hate has no home here. It's a nice sentiment. After all, love is good. Hate is bad. At least that's the general consensus. Yet when we think for a moment, we realize that in one sense, hate is an essential dynamic of love. I mean that if you love someone, you will necessarily what hate you will necessarily hate what threatens to destroy them. If you are good and love good, you will hate evil. So if you hate nothing, then you love nothing. God is love, John tells us. But God's word also tells us that God hates. Proverbs 6. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. God hates sin. So should we. Let love be genuine, Paul writes. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Genuine love abhors evil. So there is a sinful hatred and there is a righteous hatred of sin. Righteous hatred should have a home in our hearts. The problem is that we do not love God and we do not hate sin as we should. This is because the devil deceives us. It's because our own hearts deceive us. They tell us that sin is a small thing that's really not that bad. We need God's help, therefore, to see the horror of sin clearly that we may hate it appropriately. And God's word reveals this horror to us in passages like Judges 19. One of the purposes of this chapter is to drag you into the world's darkness so you will seek the light of the world who has come to deliver us from this darkness. So we're going to walk through this darkness together in order that we might find the light. The farther we've traveled in Judges, 
the darker it has become. It's like descending in the ocean. The darkness grows with the depths. The last five chapters are like swimming in the Marianas Trench. You thought you had reached the bottom, and now you realize there are even greater depths you didn't imagine. In chapters 19 through 21, though, we finally touch the bottom. The story begins with yet another reminder that Israel had no king in these days, and it begins with an introduction to yet another nameless Levite. The tribe of Levi was unique in Israel. The Levites were to be set apart for God. They didn't receive an inheritance of land like the other tribes because the Lord was to be their inheritance. They were essentially the full-time ministry workers. They weren't all priests, only the descendants of Aaron were priests, but the rest of the Levites were still designated for religious work. So this Levite is from Ephraim, but he takes for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now a concubine was kind of like a wife, but more of a, a second class or second tier wife. She was part wife part servant. This is why she's referred to at times as the Levite's servant, and the Levite is called both her husband and her master. A concubine was more property than partner. Not surprisingly, this relationship ran into difficulty. It's not entirely clear if the, the concubine was sexually unfaithful, the, the Hebrew can, can meet, she, she's simply unhappy with the Levite. But either way, she leaves him and she returns to her father. And after at least four months, the Levite finally goes after her. We don't know if the concubine was happy to see the Levite, but her father was overjoyed. He generously and hospitably serves the Levite for three days. The Levite tries to leave on the fourth day, but the father-in-law persuades him to stay. This is repeated the fifth day. However, the Levite finally says, enough is enough. I'm going home. And so he leaves for home in the evening with his concubine. Now, the point of all of this interaction is, one, to explain why the Levite and his concubine find themselves in Gibeah at night. The delay is what will lead to disaster. But it is also to serve as a contrast between the lavish hospitality of the father-in-law with the brutal inhospitality of Gibeah. Hospitality was a big deal in the ancient Near East. It was a matter of honor. It was usually a matter of the law. So finally, the Levite and his concubine leave, and they arrive opposite of Jabus, which is what the city of Jerusalem was called at the time. The Israelites had not yet conquered it, and so it is filled with Canaanites. The male servant suggests, well, we should just stay here for the night, but the Levite will not hear of it, for how could they possibly be safe when they are surrounded by pagan Canaanites who have no moral code? 
surely they would only be safe among fellow Israelites. And so the ominous foreshadowing begins. The Levite, therefore, leads them to Gibeah in the land of Benjamin. But when they arrive, no Israelite will take them in, which is another ominous sign. Gibeah is already being presented to us as an inhospitable wasteland. But eventually, a man does arrive who's not a Benjaminite. He's so from Ephraim, and he is hospitable. He gladly takes the Levite, his concubine, the male servant in, and he warns them, don't spend the night in the square, growing this ominous shadow in the reader's mind. And finally, we understand this sense of foreboding and dread. For as they eat and drink at the old man's house, the men of Gibeah appear. The author describes them as worthless fellows and depicts them as a ravenous horde who surround the house so that nobody can escape, and they beat on the door. The, the language is not just of hard knocking, it is of men hurling themselves against the door to break it down. These are men enslaved by their passions and are wild with lust because they want to know the Levite, which is a polite way of using sexual language. The master of the house is horrified by their request. He takes his role as the host very seriously. The host was responsible for the safety and well-being of anyone who came under his roof. It was great shame for harm to, to befall one of your guests. So he will not give them the Levite. But lest you think this is a righteous man, he offers his virgin daughter and the Levite's concubine to them. He even says, violate them and do with them what seems good to you, which echoes the sad refrain of these final chapters. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You see, Canaanite culture thought nothing of women. They were property, they were objects, so you wouldn't harm a man, but sure, you can harm a woman. And yet these are Israelites who are thinking the exact same way. But the men still want the Levite, but someone, either the master of the house or the Levite, it's not quite clear, grabs the concubine and thrusts her out the door. The lustful horde ravishes and abuses her all night until the dawn breaks, and finally the broken woman is free to crawl with her arms outstretched, reaching for mercy that she will not receive. Her Master then wakes up, having slept apparently through the night without a care in the world, and when he finds his concubine, he callously calls her to get up. But the corpse cannot obey his command. 
So he tosses the body on his donkey, takes her home, cuts her into 12 pieces, and then sends her throughout the land for all Israel to see. And all who do see wonder, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. They had never seen anything like this. And yet something very much like this had happened before, and the author of Judges wants you to remember it when you read this story. For several elements remind you of Genesis chapter 19. In Genesis 19, two visitors come to a city called Sodom. When they arrive, a man named Lot warns them not to spend the night in the town square and tells them to come home with him. Then the men of Sodom surround the house and they demand to know the visitors. Lot begs them not to do such a wicked thing and he offers them his two virgin daughters. The difference in the stories is that the visitors in Genesis 19 were angels from the Lord sent to bring destruction upon Sodom. So they strike the men of Sodom with a supernatural blindness. They get Lot, his wife, and his daughters away to safety. And then God rains the full fury of his wrath upon Sodom and Gomorrah, destroying the cities and all of their inhabitants. And from that moment on, throughout the Old Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah are held up to the Israelites as the epitome of evil and as the warning that if you rebel against the Lord, you will suffer the same fate as Sodom. The tragic revelation of Judges 19 is that there's a new Sodom, but it's not found in Canaan. It's found in Israel. Gibeah is the new Sodom. And now when you go back and you read through those first 16 chapters of Judges and you think, God, you, you were really overreacting. How bad could these Israelites have gotten? You realize how merciful God was merely to send foreign oppressors and not annihilate them with fire from heaven. And how merciful he was that he raised up deliverers to save these people. How then do we respond to this horrifying story? We do as the final verse tells us to do. We consider it, we take counsel, and we speak. Number one, we consider it. And the main thing we consider is that truly no one is righteous. There are no heroes in Judges 19. There are no deliverers. There are only depraved sinners. And so we remember the theme. 
everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And when we think, well, how wicked were these people? We remember the root of the problem. They would not submit to any king, and they just did what they thought was right. So if you're looking for the good guys in this chapter, you're never going to find them. They aren't there. The fact that everyone remains nameless is to reveal the pervasive nature of Israel's sin. While these characters were real people, they are to, in one sense, just represent everybody in Israel at that time. Everyone was capable of great sin, and everyone was in danger of great suffering. Israel was a land in the days of the judges of great sin and suffering. So Judges 19 is illustrative of the first three chapters of Romans, which says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He goes on to say, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, when you read Genesis 19 about Sodom or Romans 1, you may say, yes, that is what they are like. We'll gladly call out sin when the category is them, those out side, and it doesn't include ourselves. But Paul, in Judges 19, won't let us off the hook, as if this is just a, a them problem. So Paul continues in Romans 2 to speak to Jews, to speak to those who are on the inside, who do have and know God's law. And he says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. And then he brings it all together in Romans 3 saying, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, 
None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is in an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law speaks, Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That description has no exceptions. We cannot read it and say, that's a them problem. So when we read Judges 19, we should feel sick. We should feel horrified. We should feel saddened. For Judges 19 reveals the knowledge of sin. Not their sin, our sin. And so we should not read it and pray like the Pharisee, God, I thank you I'm not like them, like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and then go on to pontificate on all the good things we've done. The point is that the new Sodom was in Israel, not outside of Israel. And so every mouth should be stopped. Whether you had never stepped foot in a church before or have been going twice on Sunday since you were born, every mouth should be stopped when we read this word. So we must hear Judges 19 and consider that no one is righteous outside of Christ. We may not be as bad as we possibly could be. We may not have committed sins to the same degree as the Levite or the men in Gibeah. We may think we compare favorably to other people, but that's not the standard God is holding us to. He doesn't grade on a curve. We are held before the righteous standard of his perfect law. And everyone's grade outside of Christ is not righteous. So Judges 19 first speaks to each of us like Nathan spoke to David. You are the man. Second, we are to take counsel. And by that, I mean we are to take counsel with the Lord and we are to pray for the grace of conviction. Conviction of sin is a supernatural work of God's Holy Spirit that is intended to save us from God's judgment. So David prays in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 
So Judges 19 should not only horrify us, it should humble us. It should awaken us to the potential darkness in our own hearts. For sin is hurling itself upon the doors of our hearts, desiring to know, abuse, and destroy us. And so we must ask God to find our sin so that it will not destroy us. We ask God to shine his light upon us that we might see our sin. Now the goal isn't simply to see sin. See, as David prays, that the search for his sin is the search for the way everlasting. So the search for sin is the search for grace. For to bring your sin to God is to bring your soul to God to receive his mercy. So mysteriously, it is only as you search the darkness that you will find the light. God's word first shows you how dark sin is, and then he shows you how bright Jesus is. And we must ask God to do this because our hearts will deceive us, but our hearts cannot deceive God. The truth will set us free, and that truth begins with the knowledge of our sin. We need to know that we can't possibly justify ourselves by our own works, and only then when will we seek justification through another route. So we consider that no one is righteous. We take counsel with the Lord and pray for the grace of conviction, and then we speak. And what is it that we speak? We pray not with the Pharisee, but with the tax collector who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We'll see next time that the sight of the woman's dismembered body will lead Israel to finally inquire of the Lord. And the sight of sin's ruined remains should lead us to do the same. We pray for conviction, and when it comes, we plead for mercy. We don't try to justify ourselves, defend ourselves, tell God, well, it really wasn't that bad. We simply ask for mercy. For while no one can be justified by their works, everyone can be justified by God's grace in Christ. So the Pharisee sees his sin and thinks, I'm so glad I'm not like them. The tax collector sees his sin and he knows, but for the grace of God, go I. And those under the influence of the Spirit know that they are like other men and that if they have not sinned to the degree someone else has, it has only been God's merciful restraint, not their moral respectability. So our plea in light of conviction should be nothing except God have mercy. And the good news is that God is merciful to repentant sinners because he sent his son to save them from their sin. Sin destroys our humanity. It dehumanizes us. This is clear from the way the, the author describes the concubine. Times you almost forget she's there. 
She's nameless. She's helpless. She's treated as property and pretty worthless property at that. She's brutalized. She's used. She's abused. She never says a word. Even in death, she is treated as nothing as the Levite just cuts up her body and parades her around Israel. I can't even imagine what this woman suffered. There are those in this world who do know. Many are still viewed as nothing more than objects for somebody else's self-gratification. Many are trafficked and abused in the secrecy of darkness. And yet I do find hope and comfort in two things. First, I find comfort knowing that God did know this woman. He knew her name. He knit her together in the womb. He formed her in his image. And we know that in God's eyes, no life is worthless. He sees everything that happens in the dark. And he will judge every sin that is tried to hide in the darkness. He will destroy the wicked. That is a warning to us. It is also a comfort to us. There has never been one sin, even if no one else has seen it, where God has said, you know what, I'm just going to let this go. I don't really care about this one. So even if no one else has seen how you have been sinned against, God has. And as we'll see in the last two chapters, God is going to rage against the sin that was perpetrated against this woman. He will not let it go. But second, I find comfort knowing how differently Christ responded to the demands for his beloved bride. See, Jesus Christ is the perfect bridegroom. The church is not described as Christ's concubine, but as his bride. Christ is also the perfect host. He is the great protector and provider. You see this in Psalm 23. First part of Psalm 23 is the Lord as the great shepherd, but the second part of Psalm 23 is the Lord as the great host. And he takes his hosting responsibility seriously. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, the Lord is the one who has gone out in the darkness and he has called his people into the safety of his home. When no one else would take them, he would take them in. And so I ask you, do you dwell in the house of the Lord by faith? If so, then you need to know what your great host has done for you. You see, he did not cast us out as a worthless servant into the vile clutches of sin and Satan when they demanded to have us. He didn't discard us in order to save himself from suffering. Instead, we know that 
Christ took the form of of a servant and he cast himself into the dark world that he might save his people and they could sleep in security. He gave himself up so that he would be the one despised and rejected, battered and broken, abused and mistreated. He gave his life in death. And then it was his broken body, the message of Christ crucified that goes out into the world so that all might hear and know such a thing like this has never happened before. And he did this so that we would not suffer the fate of that poor concubine reaching for mercy she would not receive. You see, sin has ravished and destroyed us. It has left us with arms outstretched upon the threshold. But if we would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, when he opens the door, he does lovingly bid us to rise, but then he takes us by the hands and he raises us from death to life, to new life and to new love, to the love of one who gave himself for us, that he might sanctify us, having cleansed us by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present us to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that we might be holy and without blemish. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I do ask that in your mercy you would help us see where sin still lurks where shadows still grow in our own hearts, that you might lead us out of the darkness to once again behold the light of the world. Lord, there are things that happen every day in our life, in the world. All the The news reports of what continues to happen in Ukraine and Israel and Gaza, it keeps reminding us this world is darkness. Would you help us once again to see the light? And would you give us grace to keep telling others about the light that they might know the perfect love of the one who gave himself for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.